हेलो एवरीवन वेलकम टू द सिक्स्थ एपिसोड ऑफ चर्चा विद कैट्स आई एम महिता वलोरी अ स्टूडेंट ऑफ ग्लोबल अफेयर्स एट द स्कूल ऑफ इंटरनेशनल अफेयर्स ओपी जनरल ग्लोबल यूनिवर्सिटी एंड आई विल बी होस्टिंग टुडेस एपिसोड अलोंगसाइड प्रोफेसर राघव शर्मा हु हैज द सेंटर फॉर अफगानिस्तान स्टडीज एंड टीचर्स एट द जनरल स्कूल ऑफ इंटरनेशनल अफेयर्स टुडे We are privileged to have the opportunity to host Ms. Wasma Froog, who is a leading women's rights activist from Afghanistan, a recipient of the 2009 edition of the International Women of Courage Award. Ms. Froog has been actively campaigning for women's rights and human rights since the early 90s. She has organized several community-based empowerment programs for women in Afghanistan while simultaneously working to raise awareness of the poor living conditions and the abuses faced by Afghan refugee women living in Pakistan. Ms. Froog is the founder of the Women and Peace Studies Organization in Afghanistan, a civil society organization that has a very unique focus. It is one of the few organizations in the country that advocates for the inclusion of women's perspectives and participation within the framework of peace and security in Afghanistan with a firm focus on increasing the number of women in the police force. Ms. Froog oversees the work of the organization on the ground and ensures that Afghan women are part of the national and local peace building efforts. More recently she has worked with the Afghan Women's Networks International campaign to raise the concerns of lack of Afghan women in the ongoing peace process and as a result the campaign mobilized over 2 million women in Afghanistan to build pressure on the negotiations team Ms Frog holds a master's degree in law and human rights from the University of Warwick UK and has been trained in public policy and leadership at the George Washington and Harvard universities She has kindly accepted our invitation for a charcha on the role of Afghan women in the peace building process. Thank you so much for joining us today Ms. Rogue. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk to you. So are we and it's such a pleasure. So Ms. Rogue, what has inspired you to take up advocacy to promote the cause of women's rights in Afghanistan? And have you faced some challenges along the way? sure uh, i think for a lot of uh, people who actually have a very strong conviction about many social injustices this goes back to their childhood and and that is very much true for me as well i think from a very early age i had a lot of tendencies to break many uh, rules that were set for little girls and women in my family and those were the days that um, i think i started learning to actually uh, become more rebellious against a lot of patriarchal practices that was going on so for example we had a very large family just right before the war started in afghanistan in the 80s that i remember of and um, we were like huge family all of us living together maybe my cousins around 16 17 of them all together and we had a very specific rule uh, for girls not to play we had a huge apple garden and uh, we girls were tasked by for cleaning it but i always 
broke that rule and I used to play um, with my uh, cousins and and so I think for me um, this conviction started uh, very much at an early age and then seeing those injustices within my family and then society at large and then the war started we became uh, refugees in Pakistan and, and there the conditions of, of the refugees, particularly in the refugee camps in Peshawar. Those were the very early days of, uh, you know, my uh, kind of how my worldview started shaping around um, social justice. So that those were the times that I believe um, I, I became much stronger in terms of my conviction that I need to do something about it. I need to do, I didn't know what exactly, but I... I, in, in whatever little opportunities I started with, I used that to kind of, uh, you know, amplify those voices and create some sort of momentum around those social injustices that I was witnessing. And on, in terms of challenges, of course, you know, this, this path is a very indefinite uh, path. You hardly see uh, your um, successes very tangible. At the same time, you hardly uh, have any support along the way, even, you know, internally within families, especially being a young woman, uh, you know, um, in, a, in a country like Afghanistan and, and uh, with, with the patriarchal structures that we have internally. So it's, it's, it's a very lonely struggle. And, uh, and eventually you hardly see uh, what happens, but of course it's that conviction that you keep going on and along the way. For me, it's 25 years down the road that when I look at uh, things today and then I see how things were um, those years back, then I start getting those glimpses of hope um, that, oh yeah, we were able to bring those changes uh, into the lives of um, myself, my sisters, many girls in my family and many girls actually and around my community. You know, Vashmajan, um, Afghan women have traveled a long road since 2001 in particular, right? Ever since the Taliban regime was toppled, that is seen in many ways as a watershed as far as the advocacy of concerned. Access to education, access to health, along with p- political representation, are the two areas that are, are actually the three areas that are touted as success stories for Afghan women. In fact, Afghanistan is said to have the highest rate of women representatives um, in the South Asian region. Uh, you have a large number of women parliamentarians. How well uh, do you think this mirrors the situation of ordinary Afghan women? And do you believe that women's participation in the political arena has helped transform the lives of women in Afghanistan? Well, you know, like, so I call the post-2002 era the golden era for Afghan women. Um, But it also doesn't mean that there was like literally nothing going on before that in terms of women's emancipation. Um, I don't know, like, if you guys have actually looked at it, but Afghan women got their uh, voting rights even before women got it in the U.S. Um, so uh, we have had a history, a tumultuous history of women's emancipation because what happened is that like Afghanistan's first king actually, he his wife came up in public supporting women's rights, the king himself introduced 
and this is I'm talking about 1990 Queen Soraya 20 yeah King Amon Lion Queen Soraya those were like the, those uh, stepping stones for women's emancipation that happened in Afghanistan but when the war actually kind of started taking shape locally um, and also let's uh, go back to the realities of social fabric in Afghanistan it's a heavily um, rural community Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what has happened is that the politics has been in the hands of people in the um, urban settings so there has been this conflict that has been going on between rural and urban settings for so many years and that actually does impact you know how um, the politics took shape so at the same time what happened um, after 2002 uh, and of course the Taliban era but also let's um, remember that we also had a civil war um, mm-hmm. right after uh, we defeated the Soviet Union and then we had this uh, 1990s early 1990s um, civil war which actually kind of ruined almost that became that kind of it it was a bridge that ruined the, the past and created this you know history that people all what they remember about Afghanistan is the Taliban but there has been a history before that uh, which is the civil war which um, I was a you know a 10 11 year old girl growing up at that time which we became refugees during the civil war for example and that um, that was the time that actually created the the, um, uh, the emergence of the Taliban so when the Taliban came in to the power um, politically motivated to ruin whatever had been left from the civil um, civil war and they were very successful in ruining all those legacies of the history and 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 the past of Afghanistan so for me uh, this uh, post 2002 era is like a golden era for us I came to Afghanistan and um, like permanently in, in December 2001. My family was still in, in Pakistan and and I I started actually working in Afghanistan um in December uh, 2001 and those were the days that we could kind of go around there was so much uh, you know um, hope and optimism within the communities people were so relieved to get rid of the Taliban regime and and there was a lot of uh, you know mobilization that we started doing so we went around the whole country we mobilized you know millions of women for the the first constitution the afghan constitution being an islamic uh, you know a based uh, constitution is one of the most uh, you know progressive constitutions of the region uh, when it's uh, you know compared to many other countries in the region um for example in terms of gender equality in terms of you know minority rights for example and um, that was a very important uh, you know um, achievement for us 2004 Uh, 2002 actually we started then until 2004 and then we got the first uh, in women's uh, political representation mm-hmm. you know 5% in the parliament the quota many women came just because of the quota during the for example 2005 elections but that didn't happen in 2000 for example um, 12 and 2014 and for example 2000 15 and um, 16 when when we had the other parliamentary elections now women politicians are you know well known in their communities and they have created that political social base 
so similarly you know we we made some very important um, uh, milestones in in women's rights and um, progress and that has happened because there was there wasn't still society you know is ready to uh, to move on with with uh, women's rights and 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 of course uh, i don't negate the reality that this is a very patriarchal society and um, as you know many other countries in the region but in terms of the political representation you know the the level of women's engagement that we have had recently for example in the recent years and i have to you know um, give the credit to president ghani as well that he personally so i worked um, under um, his ad- administration um, you know as um, a counselor on the high peace council where we were tasked to start the uh, peace process in 2017 and 2018 and then I worked in the Ministry of Defense as the general director, and uh, and those were, you know, the opportunities where I realized how much there was this political will from the president himself, where you know there was a lot of um, specific, uh, you know, uh, steps were taken to bring in women into the government cabinet positions. For example, we have women ministers, we have women ambassadors women making their way into in, into the civil service, for example. So those has been important kind of milestones. But what is actually taking us back and, and with one step we go and got back many steps is the, the, is the conflict. So the conflict that's going on uh, with the Taliban, the insurgency from the Taliban and then uh, the political uh, you know, aspect of the insurgency. So what is so important, particularly for your students in terms of you know, understanding um, international relations and also kind of how conflicts work is that you call it uh, the Taliban insurgency is considered insurgency. We I use insurgency in a very loose uh, way, but it's actually um, a very politically motivated um, uh, conflict where, uh, you know, the politics of it uh, goes beyond Afghanistan, which does not actually is not limited to our reach. And it's very much, uh, you know, has a huge uh, regional uh, dynamics. The fact that the Taliban leadership has never been in Afghanistan in the past 25 years. They lived actually in Quetta and in, in, in Pakistan and, and other countries or Iran, for example. So it's very much uh, the, it's the conflict that has actually taken, you know, um, away all those important steps that we have taken up. So the provinces that I used to, for example, travel three day times a week um, during uh, the 2004-2007 era, actually until 2010, like it's it's literally impossible right now to to go there by by for example drive. I used to drive to uh, to Mghazni and Zabul, and these are the southeastern parts of the country, and, and then from there to Kandahar, at least two times a week because that's where I was actually. Those were my uh, areas where I was working with the, the UN um, office at that time. But these days, uh, like it, it started becoming impossible from 2001. So what I'm trying to say is that the, the progress, social progress has been very much hampered by the conflict. And that's what the conflict is meant to, to kind of suppress any social progress that could take place in Afghanistan. Right, right. Um, you know, number of questions emerge from what you've stated. The first of which, of course, is, you know, you've talked about the earlier uh, movements for women in Afghanistan, starting from Queen Soraya. Uh, but, you know, the criticism of these earlier feminist movements 
uh, movements for women's emancipation whether it was queen soraya or whether it was you know the very ham-handed approach of the communists to try and emancipate women in their own way all of them um, elicited a very strong reaction and eventually these projects failed and the criticism that was leveled against emancipation in afghanistan was that they were based on a very weak foundation they were largely externally inspired or in the case of the soviets externally imposed what do you think makes the efforts post 2001 different from that is there a difference i i see huge difference i would disagree with you uh, to certain level in terms of how i see based on my you know family background and and, and engagements and uh, you know um, uh, being coming from afghanistan is that you know it's not just a blank statement that those efforts failed because they were externally motivated i would say they failed because there were external forces that actually worked very hard and and, and deliberately to make them fail uh, afghanistan's geopolitical um, you know realities have always superseded its political realities its social reality and um, even during you know king amanullah we have had um, many many uh, you know conservative elements from the region who used to so these are my father used to work under the the communist regime for example where we hear stories of how much you know the regional um, you know violent extremist groups had a role in creating social unrest in afghanistan if every time there was a, a rule or a, a law was introduced to support and protect women you know the leaflets would start coming from peshawar actually and being distributed in the villages that oh afghanistan is turning into kafir state and kafir state so that infidel you know nature of um, uh, of scaring actually everybody off has been a very very strong tool and this is what continues to happen even until today if you want something to be you know um, uh, socially boycotted just label it as non-islamic and then leave the rest to the masses um, and that's very relevant to our realities in, in even today's uh, life in the region that we see if there is something called which could be labeled as attack on religion then it's the masses that makes the decision and and, and usually it's very it's a, it's a very negative consequence so um in terms of uh, you know like what has been 2002 era um, different um, having been part of this from a very very foundational perspective i think that there has been huge will of afghan population and this goes across the board like we saw you know women in the not just women but communities and rural areas communities and the urban areas where you know people's even today in the in the very hard times you know like my organization is actively working in so many provinces we continue getting you know requests from areas where there's no school for for school for example we continue getting even despite the fact that the taliban continue attacking you know women in the government yeah, we because we work with women's leadership locally you know just by asking one question that which women are interested to join for example leadership positions in the government like we get scores of applications just last week you know my organization uh, convened a 
consultation for members of the negotiation team in Doha and we had people from the farthest areas of Afghanistan talking about rights, talking about injustices. So what I believe that today's Afghanistan is, is a very, very different Afghanistan of the past 25 years. And that's what the Taliban have failed to understand because they have, the, particularly their leadership, has not lived in Afghanistan for the past 25 years. And the fact that today we have, you know, uh, women and men coming forward from so many far provinces of Afghanistan and saying they do not want an Islamic emirate of the Taliban to be imposed on them. They want democratic rights for them. They want their children to continue to go to school. They want freedom from the ongoing bloodshed and the voices and the mobilization that they have made is amazing. So what I see huge difference is that today's Afghanistan is a very different Afghanistan of the past 25 years. Right, right. You know, you also very interestingly pointed to the impact of, you know, how uh, women are affected by conflict. Um, now, we came across a very interesting dialogue that you were having on, um, you know, the need to involve women in peace. So you had, um, you know, uh, recalled the conversation you had with men, male delegates of the lawyer Jirga, you know, where the men told you effectively that you women are not part of war, you're not killing. You're not doing any suicide bombings and attacks. You're not part of the war. Mm. So what makes you part of the peace? So, mm. you know, we'd like to know from you, having worked in Afghanistan extensively and under very challenging circumstances, what is uh, what is the state that we have at peace and why should, you know, what is the need to involve women in peace according to so for me and many of us, so I work as part of a huge coalition of women. Over 500 women leaders have come together. We have formed a coalition for the past few years where we come, we make a lot of mobilization for, you know, we, we do like a lot of international level advocacy. We do a lot of national level mobilization. And our campaign that we started back, will not go back we were able actually to mobilize over 2 million women as part of that so this is a huge one but uh, for us what we see women's inclusion not just as a women's rights issue or as a women's issue but as a as a matter of inclusion and what does that mean is that if this process is not inclusive if this process that the political peacemaking that has started and or let's to be very clear it's a political settlement and negotiations for a political settlement with the taliban if it does not have a peace building element it will fail and we have seen it fail during the najib government the communist regime mm -hmm. when the communist regime tried to you know make peace with the with the mujahideen and we had the civil war and so because it failed it did not have an element of peace building. So what we women are actually talking about, it's not just that we want to be part of the process and, and that's it. No, we are asking for the process to become more inclusive. The process needs to bring in the voices of different political groups, different social groups. We have religious minorities, we have sectarian minorities in Afghanistan. Uh, and in uh, um, different, uh, you know, social political realities. So what we are actually looking at as as wi women's inclusion is a kind of a litmus test for this process to see if it actually fails or or um, succeeds. 
women's perspective is actually bringing a opening up a space for many other uh, you know groups who are excluded so for example one of our call is very much around bringing the victims of war into the process which are very much you know kind of excluded so women are not just lobbying for themselves but they are lobbying for all those elements that can make this process work uh, to be included so we are for example very much actively working with other political groups in the country to try to bring in their perspectives and also you know um, identify what are some of the root causes that we need to deal with in order for this conflict to be uh, you know addressed we are very much you know focusing on in issues of governance for example so women's engagement is actually you know um, it's bringing in all those other elements it's not women's rights um, that that we needed for this process to succeed like the level of violence is a huge a challenge for us and we are doing a lot of uh, you know um, uh, campaigning uh, from the women's groups and women's network for example on ceasefire so we have been very much actively engaging with the international partners and also like calling on all parts of the conflict to actually you know reduce this level of violence that has taken up on lives so um Ma'am, what actually struck us a lot about your work is uh, your advocacy for women's inclusion in the security reform processes, mm-hmm. and more particularly the police force, because a lot of conversations about women's rights kind of miss out on the policy uh, making platforms. So that was a little intriguing for us. Mm-hmm. So why do you believe it is important to include women in the security forces? it goes back to this over to this new um, not new actually but our paradigm of what security is so when i started working in afghanistan after 2002 you know engaging with communities and trying to b- build peace locally what we started realizing is that security is not just about you know having a police chief having so many armed men in the community but it's about community's ability to be able to you know have a peace of mind being able for the girls to go to school the boys you know not being killed in in gun violence for example and also a community's ability to engage with their local governments ask for services so for us that concept of security is very much more beyond just the military and armed men and that's what actually started us working on this so i started this organization um, in 2012 actually right after i came um, from my studies in the uk was that I started to actually work on this concept that security is not about military it's not about you know um, 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 uh, militarization and arms and ammunition but it's about safe communities so one of those elements that people started for example um, you know identifying was the lack of women um, engagement into the security sector So how do you bring those reforms in a security sector that's heavily you know um, uh, heavily involved in Taliban insurgency whose first uh, or priority is about Taliban insurgency while on the other hand the Taliban insurgency is actually taking benefit from the lack of governance from the lack of rule of law which of course the police is responsible to and you know um to secure so it's a kind of a catch 22 situation and my organization we um, and as with many other civil society 
we started in bringing in women into the security sector. That actually opened the pace locally for getting women into the secure into the police, for example. And where we identified, you know, positions for for uh, women into the police uh, for you know community policing. So this is a, there is an initiative that I worked in 2008, which was very successful and continues until today, is the Neighborhood Watch. So we identified communities where the level of violence and crimes were very high, the level of girls' education was very low, and the level of community and you know sense of peace and protection was very low, and people were were very much you know. Um, and not supportive of the government. So we started these neighborhood watch um, initiatives um, where we brought the local government, which was mainly, for example, the police, the local municipality, and, and the community members, and also engaged, for example, female um, you know, teachers, the girls' schools. And we started identifying what are the challenges. For example, one of the big challenges was that the local gun, uh, you know, uh, uh, criminal groups, they became, they were, um, you know, going um, around the girls' schools to, you know, uh, create disturbances and not allow girls to school. So the parents identified that and then the police started dealing with it. And on the other hand, for example, we identified the the, the, the um, families or the, those uh, community members where they said, you know, we we think there are some suspicious criminal activities going on in this in this community, but we cannot enter uh, as the male police. So we need female police to actually enter into these homes. So we started opening those, you know, venues for women engagement into the police. And today, like we have you know more than 10,000 women in the police force which is of course very small um, but we have started actually opening up you know or scratching the surface on on this whole concept of security that it's it is it has to go beyond just military and arms well um, you know while a lot of ground has been covered in this regard Afghan women have made tremendous strides over the years um, and the new constitution that was put into place in 2004 also provided a, a constitutional framework in which you could embed a lot of these achievements. Um, it provided a safety net in some ways to the civil society, the challenge is notwithstanding. However, today as you know, we look at the intra-Afghan negotiations, many people are questioning, um, you know, uh, they're questioning how far would these rights stand protected, given the fact that the agreement between the Taliban and the United States does not make a single mention of the Afghan constitution, it makes no mention of women's rights, um, it makes no mention of human rights, it makes no mention of the Islamic Republic, um, and, the, and, and the Taliban negotiation team does not have a single woman representative. So what do you believe are the red lines that need to be kept in mind while negotiating with the Taliban, particularly given the fact that many critics have argued that the Taliban has not changed and what's essentially they're talking about respecting women's rights is all hollow rhetoric and, uh, you know, uh, nobody will be able to hold them to account uh, should be achieved at all. So what are the red lines and what are the inherent dangers that lurk that need to be that one needs to be aware of. So for me as a peace building uh, practitioner, I see one uh, you know foundational flaw with the talks that I usually you know bring that in the media as well. 
is this what is the basis of these talks the basis of the talks is very much on unleveled uh, playing field uh, the Taliban are uh, have been given uh, you know a lot of fake legitimacy by the US and international uh, partners because the US is in a hurry to leave Afghanistan and they think that if they mm-hmm. actually you know um, not a deal that would look like peace it would be called victory for the US for the Taliban you know having engaged directly with the former members of the Taliban and having interactions with the current members my understanding is that for the Taliban it's a return to emirate it's a revenge the Taliban feel that they have been you know very harshly treated by the US in 2001 they were you know toppled down they lost their you know state so they actually come as a state into the pos- into the talks and they do not accept to be just one as as an insurgent group the way we look at them so the and, and the, so the basis of the of the, the talks is a very unleveled you know um, the taliban do not see an incentive in negotiating with the talks and agreeing to a win-win situation they they have nothing to actually gain from this process their only weapon is violence which they continue to exert on our population they do not have a political base so they know that they cannot get into the you know the elections and democratic you know processes and uh, and and at the same time they are you know a very unpopular uh, you know um, regime during their emirate so the taliban do not have anything to gain from a win-win situation from a from a leveled political settlement what they can gain is that they think that if this the level of negotiations could actually continue at this very you know stalling kind of situation and the US starts leaving the Taliban would actually can take over Kabul militarily because of their you know ongoing insurgency that has taken up so much of you know an afghan government's resource and at the same time when if afghan government loses the international military or especially the us military support then of course the taliban would have you know a, a stronger kind of uh, power and then the taliban think that there might be a civil war uh, and then they would actually be able to to form their own emirate so this is the at uh, the crux of the matter and in this situation you know you need to put many many uh, you know checks and balances so we need um, a strong mediator for this process you know i've been asking for an an strong mediator an international third party mediator that can bring the two parties and create some level of playing field the second thing is an international oversight you need to have an international oversight to any any formal negotiations which we do not have we have different countries that are doing their bits and pieces in their own ghettos and just today i read in the news that you know five of the countries are now trying to put pressure but it's not going to work unless there is a formal mechanism of international oversight the technical aspect of it is also very critical you need to have a technical team in place that can actually develop negotiation models for the negotiation team these are politicians they are not peace builders they are not peace building you know, or even mediators or or you know kind of settlement experts so we need you know these three elements are missing from the process right now Mm-hmm. there is a lot of asks which um, you said as red lines yes there are many red lines that we keep asking for but we do not have 
and uh, miss frog like you've mentioned previously a lot of what the taliban act on are the way um, you know the sharia or uh, the quran is interpreted and uh, you know like you've mentioned previously even when in the past uh, several reforms have been uh, brought forward to develop women's rights in afghanistan uh, they've been branded uh, anti islamic and uh, western and what not so do you think that the religious leaders of afghanistan can play a role in influencing the afghan society to let go of their conservative and orthodox interpretations of the sharia laws or the quran and adapt to a flexible and a more liberal one You know if you do a survey with Afghan population today you would hardly find even 5% of the population that would label any of the Taliban's acts as islamic so and that's something that i'm very very much firm about and and so what the taliban's you know jihad and and continuous bloodshed uh, of afghan lives has actually very much labeled as anti-islamic by afghan um, you know ulama themselves uh, sadly you know they have been attacked so there is a lot of targeted killings of the ulama who who speak up against you know uh, the taliban's brutality on on afghan population and this is happening so that they have actually suppressed a lot of you know religious scholars and clerics just last week in kabul we had over 3000 you know um, um, imams and and also um, alims from all over the country who came together and asked for ceasefire and end of bloodshed so but there is also that fear of for, for their lives so the taliban continue killing the um, the islamic scholars that have a very louder voice we we lost you know a number of kabul based for example scholars including um, dr niazi who were very strong and, and kind of you know advocating for real islamic um, you know um, um, uh, practices in terms of how the taliban are are very much you know going against islam so uh, but on the other hand it's it's in an islamic society uh, you know and i think in any islamic society when there is if there is a, an active propaganda that your religion is under attack then what happens is that people become very you know intimidated and 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 there's this, the masses come together and there's a lot of violence that takes place and that has happened in Afghanistan too so i which i don't think will change very much uh, even in the next centuries and this is very much you know a typical characteristic of any religious society that are very much guarding their religious identity mm-hmm. so that would happen but at the same time you know i also understand that there is a level of you know uh, contemporary um, ulama for example right now in the negotiation team we have a number of islamic scholars who are right now negotiating with the taliban uh, even as from other sects like the shias for example yeah so you know as we wrap up um i uh, have one last question which is um we talked about uh, how the taliban do not really enjoy legitimacy including religious legitimacy um but i want to move to a slightly different direction which is you know when we look at peace building what role do you think the traditional institutions come in the ulema so what do institutions like the jirga or institutions like the shura in the north or um the concepts you know like um hospitality uh, concepts like nanavati which are practiced in the southeast of the 
the practice of involving um you know women in um um the the councils local councils in bamiyan um what potential do they have um if it all to towards to contribute towards efforts at peace building in afghanistan recently we saw um, you know some women participate in the helmand peace march that began in 2018 um so what are some of the local you know what is the social and cultural capital that we can make use of uh when we're looking at the role of women in afghan peace sadly in this conflict that those social mechanisms for people's coming together resolving local disputes have been very much heavily impacted by the conflict so in many parts of the country where the taliban have an influence they have actually used jirgas to exert fear and terror in communities for example when there is a decision that the jirga makes on the you know on the force of a gun what happens is that you know the communities are um, are made to accept those decisions out of fear uh, so the the jirgas and the shuras are no more those very much community driven initiatives uh, they are very much impacted by the insurgency and the conflict however any any en- engagement that can actually bring in people together and that's what's my experience so we were able to for example sitting under a tree bringing you know 10 uh, people together discussing about their issues and being able to take that forward with the relevant for example authorities find a, res- uh, a response find an answer that has worked actually you know any initiative that can bring in people together works um, so there is an um, afghans have a and this goes you know very much to their history of maybe lack of the this having a centralized government and lack of local governments what afghans are very much used to do is that they come together locally you know, they create their own coping mechanisms they make their own alternative dispute resolution mechanisms so those things are are there but of course the taliban use it the local gunmen use it for their own you know power battles Mm-hmm. and so jirgas are very much for example being used to suppress women and children and you know doing a lot of uh, kind of injustices but at the same time if if there are initiatives that can actually you know negate just giving power to one individual or two individuals as jirga leaders but instead create a community initiative that works very much and i've seen it working and on that note we can conclude Thank you so much Ms. Froh for your valuable time. Uh it was a very engaging and inspiring conversation and we enjoyed talking to you a lot. Uh please take care and best of luck with everything. Thank, Thank you so you. much. I'm very Thank glad you. to have talked to you. Thank you. And we look forward to keeping in touch with you. Definitely. Definitely. I look forward as well. Thank you. And that marks the end of episode 6 of Charcha with Cars. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and we also hope that you and your loved ones are doing well. We would like to express our deepest gratitude for all of your support and we hope you'll stick around with us. Thank you so much. Until next time. Goodbye.